Good afternoon, everybody. The 3 p.m. is wild. Oh, my days. Worship, I, 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 I felt winded in worship. Like, I was, I was thinking, I don't want to preach, man. I want to, I, one, I just want to keep going, or two, just, just cut the preach, because this is so rich. Um, yeah, I, I feel a little taken aback, but we're going we're gonna to keep going in this series that Pete kicked off last week. I have a little, like, little noise if you were in the room, just so I know. Last week, yeah, yeah, okay. Awesome. So if you, if you want, go back and listen so you don't... It's like watching a new series. You need to start from the beginning. So go back and watch the first episode uh, after this. But the series is Awakening the City and looking at these biblical cities as blueprints, as archetypes for the way that we might relate to London. And uh, it's invigorating. I moved to London last July with my family, which felt like a homecoming. I, I'm from London originally. I moved around a lot. I'm a missionary kid, which is where the funky accent comes from. <laughs> But uh, we came back to London in July, and even, even us, be, only being here, well, I don't know, seven, eight months, hearing that sermon last week was a, a reminder and a reinvigorating of why we're here. So I, please listen to it. So Pete talked about Babylon and this idea of um, from extraction to servanthood. And today I'm talking about the city of Hebron, and the idea is moving from conflict to refuge. And so I want to begin with a kind of anchoring, with a scripture that we're going to end up with, because we're going to go to a few different places in the time that we have. There's going to be a lot of context and some history, and uh, I want to make sure we get to this point. So I'm going to say that we're going there now to give me even more kind of direction to get there in the end. You can open your Bibles, and you're going to just hold it on your lap, right? Just be like, all right, this is coming. I'm, I'm waiting for it to, to Mark 11, and uh, we're going to end in this chapter, right? So if you feel like the time is running out and I'm not there, you have permission to shout, Mark 11, don't forget about Mark 11. So we're going to get there. But beginning with this, we've got to talk about Hebron, and we've got to talk about conflict. We can't get to refuge without acknowledging and naming conflict. So some of you will recognize the name of, the, of this city, Hebron. It's, it's significant beyond really words that I can articulate in the time that we have. Hebron was the, the area where Abraham bought a cave. He, he was going to be given the cave, but he decided to buy the cave at full market value to bury his beloved Sarah. He's buried his wife there. And it's believed that all the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith are buried in the cave at Hebron. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, all buried there. It's in Hebron that David is anointed king. So for these reasons alone, this city holds so much significance and magnitude, of course, for the Jews. But in later centuries, it became a place of great significance for the Muslims. In, in 100 years before Jesus, King Herod the Great built this magnificent wall around the cave to kind of mark it. And it's become this incredible image to behold. It's like a site of pilgrimage. You can Google it, look at it. And... For a long time, it was just a place of protecting the, the burial site of these you know, incredible people of the faith. It became a place of worship and prayer. In later years, as the land was taken over by imposing forces, it then became a mosque. And it has since then been contested. So some significant dates, 1967, I believe, is the date of the Six-Day War, which many of you will have some kind of reference and knowledge for. And during that time, it was split, it was partitioned. The cave was partitioned into both a synagogue and a mosque, if you can believe it. So on one side, the Jews come to worship and pray. On the others, separated by corridors and winding pathways, the Muslims go to worship and pray. In 1994, if you Google the city, in 1994, you'll see probably one of the first things that come up will be the massacre that happened in, in 1994. 
where a man went in with a gun and killed about 27 worshipping Muslims. It's horrific. And in 1997, a new kind of deal is formed and the deal basically partitions the whole city. So to this day, there's about 250,000 or 300,000 Muslims and about 100,000 Israeli Jews that are living in Hebron. It has been described as a kind of microchasm of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So you can imagine that I was elated to hear that I was preaching on it today. You don't need to look very far, Google very much, watch much news to realize that Hebron is a city of conflict, a contested city. And yet, all the while, we go all the way back, I think it's Numbers 35, God gives the promise to Moses of refuge, of, of Hebron being a place of refuges. Affirmed then again in Joshua 20, when Joshua says, receiving from the word of the Lord, the, the promise that was given to Moses, there will be these cities set apart, cities called places of refuge, Hebron being one of them particularly for the refugee, for someone, which is just amazing that we've heard this incredible uh, invitation today about um, housing justice, just phenomenal work. So the idea was if you were caught, if you were caught with, with, with having killed someone without meaning to, without intent, manslaughter, you could go to Hebron and find safekeeping for your time, you know. And, and it just is so powerful to me that a city that has been over all these centuries a place of conflict and death and tension has this promise hanging over it to be a place of refuge. And it speaks to me, not just of this kind of huge biblical archetypal city, it speaks to me of everybody set in these chairs. It's as if wherever there is this promise spoken over a place or a person, there is a battle. Wherever there's a, there's a promise that's been given or a prophetic uh, word that's been been definingly spoken over a place or a person there is a battle Hebron is that place there is a battle the the writer Stephen Pressfield he, he wrote his book The War of Art it's one of my favorite books about creativity and he says I wrote this book because there is the life that we live and then there is the unlived life within us and between the two stands the resistance meaning that whenever you move in the direction of your truest and fullest self, you will face resistance. You likely won't face resistance when you're living a life that is kind of defined by convenience and comfortability. That feels good for some time. But it's often the lack of resistance in a life like that that begins to lead you towards the lands of depression and despair. It's resistance that affirms in us we're going somewhere meaningful. Even nervousness, even sitting here being aware that I'm about to get up and preach... I pray that those nerves never leave me. I'm about to do something of purpose here. This is going to cost something, you know. When you walk into a job where there's a sense of this, this means something, you feel a bit of resistance. You have more reason, more desire perhaps to abstain from it, stay in bed, get away from it. When you move towards the truest, fullest version of yourself, you start to taste resistance. And of course, you could, you know, overemphasize this in everything. You could do that to the degree that it kind of loses its power, but you could do the antithesis as well. You could forget the ancient words of the Apostle Paul who said, the battle is not flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers of darkness. There is a war going on. So on Tuesday mornings on the commute and on Thursday afternoons when you're doing the weekly shop and you feel that sense of resistance, it might be worth remembering there is a cosmic battle at play at the moment. 
When was the last time you looked up from the sink washing dishes and said, ah, yeah, there is a cosmic battle over my life right now. We would do well to remember it. We'd do well to at least remind ourselves that what we see isn't the entirety of our existence. So Hebron stands as this declaration of refuge. But who's running there today? Who's running to Hebron as a place of sanctuary and a place of safety? I don't think any of us. If you were to be parachuted down into Hebron today, you'd be seeing, you know, road blockages, army presence, just thick tension in the air, not sanctuary and not safety. So my my question that I'm wrestling with today is how do we move from Hebron as a state of conflict to become a place of refuge? And how do we, for us, how do we, for us, move from a posture of conflict to a posture of refuge. In the soil of Hebron is buried the promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises of God are buried in the soil of that land. That's why there's such a war there. God said to Abraham, you might remember these, 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 these words. He said, I will give you this land. I will give it to your descendants and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. To Isaac, he says, for, to you and your descendants, I will give these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. He reminds him of the promise that was given. And then to Jacob, he says, know that I'm with you. I will protect you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. There are promises buried in the soil of that city. And there are promises buried in the soil of your soul. There are promises buried beneath the concrete slabs of these streets outside. And they are yearning and longing to be erupted and to be announced. And the battle wages because of them being there. I wonder if you might, if we just take literally 20 seconds, I wonder if you might just for a moment acknowledge one of the promises that have been spoken over your life or one of the prophetic words that you've once received. I'm going to be silent. I'll do it as well for 20 seconds. We're just going to close our eyes and just remember, is there a word or a promise that was spoken over you? Was there a prophetic word that was once given to you? If you thought of one, just pin it. Just pin it in your mind. And if you haven't yet, come back to it later. I was sharing with a friend last week. I'd call him every single week and have a bit of time of confession together. And I was just confessing deep insecurity to him. Just feeling so insecure in this area. And he said to me, Josh, isn't it interesting that that area, your insecurity is the antithesis of the promise that I have most commonly heard spoken over you. Your area of insecurity is the area that has been most consistently spoken over you in terms of God's promises and prophetic decrees. The enemy will always attack you at your highest point of revelation. Nothing else is worth going after. When Jesus was in the desert, the first thing that the enemy said is Lent next week. We're commemorating, celebrating, acknowledging the 40 days Jesus was in the desert. And when Jesus was at his weakest and most fragile, the adversary, the tempter, the enemy comes up to him and says, If you are the son of God, then turn this stone into some bread. You're hungry, right? Well, let me question your highest point of revelation. Because it was only weeks before you came out of the Jordan and that voice was spoken over him. Behold, this is my son, who I love in whom I'm well pleased. 
That was Jesus' highest point of revelation. Everything Jesus did, he did in the kind of afterglow of that confirmation of identity. So if the first thing the enemy could trip him up with was to question that identity, everything else would be easy. You'll always be attacked at your highest point of revelation. The thing you most yearn for, the thing you want to so earnestly go after, the the area where you want to do most damage to the darkness is the area you will probably face the most resistance and feel the most insecure about. One of my heroes, Henry Nouwen, the, the priest and writer, theologian, spent his whole life writing about being the beloved. And it was said of him, Henry, Henri, was the most secure, insecure person to be around. He was so secure in one sense. And then in another, he was so insecure. What was meant by that was he was constantly being questioned about that revelation because he was doing so much damage, introducing people to their identity as the beloved child of God. And the true is the true. It's true of you as well. Living your life, doing your job, caring for your family, meeting your friends, hanging out in your hobbies, everything that you're doing, you're a part of this. There's, 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 it's too easy to think of London as this kind of abstract. London is a city because there's people there. And the, the polit- political or the sociological is deeply personal. It, it's made up of personal desires and personal disappointments, personal convictions. It, it's made up of personal experiences. I watched that interview this week where, where I watched some of it. I couldn't bear watching it all. But an interview of Putin. Anybody see about that? I was curious because I'd never heard him speak before. I've just heard about him, you know, obviously like you all have. But I, but I listened to him speak in this interview. And you know what I saw? I saw a childhood bully of mine. I saw, I saw a young boy in the playground when I watched Putin talk. It's just that his playground bullying is happening on a global scale now. The political, the sociological is personal. It's deeply personal. So if we want London to become a place of refuge, if we want London to move from conflict to refuge, we must move from conflict to refuge. You don't have to put your hand up or say it out loud, but I do want you to just acknowledge it in your heart. Do you want to move from conflict to refuge? Do you want to move from a, from a sense of insecurity to a place of deep security. A place of conflict is insecure. You don't want to build a house in a war zone. You don't want to start a business in a war zone. You don't want to raise a family in a war zone. Why? Because it's insecure. It's not secure. But places of great value, places that hold great value, are always places that get attacked. There's a reason bank robbers rob banks. There's a reason that they want what's in the vault. There's a reason we secure what's in the vault. It has value. So when you feel insecure, when you feel something is attacking your securities, because there's something of great value in there. And the enemy, enemy wants his hands on it. So to move from conflict to refuge is to move from insecurity to security. It means waking up in the morning and the first thought in your mind is no longer dread. It, it, it's, it's going to sleep. And when your head hits the pillow, you actually rest. It's walking into a room and instead of scrambling for some kind of peace, you actually set the tone of tranquility. That's what we're talking about here. That's how London changes. And my blueprint, my kind of understanding of how this could happen is by turning to Mark 11. We made it. 
in Mark 11, we hear, it's an incredible chapter, 10 and 11 are amazing, but in Mark 11, we hear some incredible stories of Jesus from healing the blind man to the triumphal entry to the cursing of the fig tree, which if, if you want to read a story in scripture, which confirms that God gets hangry, read that story. <laughs> and then at verse 15, <clears throat> we had Jesus goes to the temple. So go with me to verse 15. It says this, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow, this verse, in verse 16, this is very important. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And everybody say all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, a.k.a. resistance. Why? Why were they resisting him? Because they feared him. And why did they fear him? Because the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So much is happening in this verse, and I'm going to try and do it justice with the time that we have. Jesus is going into the temple at the time of a great festival. The, the triumphal entry kind of reveals that. People are lying in the street. People have come from all over to Jerusalem, to the temple, for this great Passover experience. He goes into the temple. Why? To pray, to be with God, to hear from the Torah. And he sees people buying and selling oxen and pigeons, and he loses it. This is Jesus in his rage against the machine era. He starts flipping tables. I don't know if you've ever flipped a table. That's an extravagant move. That's a very physical act. Lifts up the table with everything that's on it, i.e. animals and money, and throws it over, and then does it again. And, and the, the verse that I love here is, uh, turning over, turning the table, the money changes, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he throws over the tables, and then to those sitting on the seats, I, th- I see him swiping the chair. They're just falling over on the floor. And then it says, and he stands in the middle of the temple, preventing anyone from coming through with their money or with what they bore. It's a, such a powerful moment that could only, I think, be summarized with one word, especially for the experience of his followers. Awkward. <laughs> this, is, this is deeply awkward. Have you ever been with someone who is just kind of going a little bit too far. You, and you feel like, yeah, they have the, you know, they're, they're a good person and they perhaps have a good conviction, but this is, this is taking it way too far. This is Jesus. This is bizarre. Then he starts quoting Old Testament. So he's throwing over tables. He's kicking down chairs. He's, he's standing in the middle of the temple, stopping people from coming through. And then he starts shouting out the Old Testament prophets. So the first thing he says is from Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of thieves. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, verses six to seven. Also the sons of the foreigner, everyone say foreigner. foreigner. 
who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Jesus is saying this temple is for anyone from anywhere, anytime. And you are prostituting mercy. You are, you are causing them to have to pay to receive what should be freely given to them. Acknowledge, acknowledge what is about to happen. Jesus has just been ushered into the city with Hosanna, Hosanna, which translates not as praise and praise him, but as help us, help us. Coming into the city, he is about to die imminently as the sacrificial lamb of Passover, freely given. He's got all of this going on in him. And then he's watching people cause those who need mercy, who want to receive forgiveness, to have to pay for it. They're doing the exact opposite of what he has come to do. And so he goes, I was going to swear, he goes mad. And, uh, and it's awkward and it's, it's upsetting and it's wild, but it's right. What he is doing is he is turning a, a place of crisis into a place of refuge. He's walked in, he said, this is meant to be a place of refuge. Why is it a place of refuge? Because it's for the refugee. It's for the person who has no home. It's for the person who's been displaced. It's for the person that's spiritually ostracized and outcast. It's for them. And you're, you've, you're using it wrong. I'm going to restore it to a place of refuge. How? By being a peacemaker. And this is, this is, this is what Jesus speaks to us in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the, they, they shall be called the children of God. Theirs is the kingdom. Being a peacemaker is the antithesis of being a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is polite, might mutter under their breath when they see something they disagree with. But ultimately, they want to keep the peace, whatever the peace is. And the peace is usually a pseudo sense of tranquility that keeps those in power who are already in power that are probably doing the very thing that's unjust. Peacemaking is overthrowing everything until true kingdom peace is restored. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is three things, righteousness, peace, and joy. And so he's, he's restoring the kingdom sense of peace into that place. But first, it's got to get a little bit awkward. And so I'm saying to myself today, I woke up this morning, I said, Kara said, how are you feeling about preaching? And I said, I feel like I'm going to preach a message to myself and some other people are going to be in the room. So I'm saying this to myself first, if we want to become places of refuge for ourselves and for others and ultimately for the city, we must first become peacemakers. That's a huge transition. That's a huge step. And, and I'll give you three really practical examples of where I've seen it play out in my life in the last couple of years, real quick. First one, my friend, my best friend, I was his best man at his wedding. He was the best man at mine. And we, we don't get to see each other that often. He was the guy I was talking to about earlier. We talk every week. But we'd gone through a time where we hadn't been speaking as much. So we put a date in a diary to go out for dinner, went to get some steak. And we sit down and I'm just, I'm just excited to see him. But before the food comes, he says, Josh, we're like laughing and chatting. He, he kind of goes a little more solemn. He says, Josh, we have to acknowledge something here. We have to acknowledge how we have been drifting apart. And I just start feeling a little like, I'm blushing. I just feel a little awkward. Like, what are you doing? You're going to ruin this evening. <laughs> Partly because I know that it's true. We haven't been honoring this friendship like we said we would. And then he brought up three things that I had done, which he was absolutely right about, which were actually quite dishonoring to him. 
And I could have, or we did, we, had a, we shed a tear together, but I could have lost it. Like, it was so hard to hear. But that was my friend saying, I don't want to keep the peace. I want to make peace. I, wa- I want this friendship to go to distance. So I'm going to do the work of peacemaking right now. If you're a creative in the room, I just want to remind you, you're all creative. The greatest thing that you can make is peacemaking. We get to form peace. He makes peace. In 2020, my family just went through what a lot of people were going through, a bit of an unraveling. We went on a family holiday in one of the kind of moments, the lockdowns, we were able to get together. We went on this holiday and it was one of those holidays where you're all together and it's just, something's off and there's just tension. And we would always say, we're the family that don't argue. We're not like other families. And we held it as like this kind of trophy on a figurative mantelpiece. Like we don't, isn't it great that we don't argue? not realizing that it was just denial. And so this holiday happens and, and, and it starts rearing its head and it's, 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 not, it's nasty. But nothing actually changes. It's just there and it's just getting closer and closer to the surface. I get back home and I say to my wife, I've I got to do something. I've, I've got to make peace. And I got in the car the next day and I remember driving four hours to where all my family live and I called a family conference. <laughs> we all got together at my sister's house. And my parents were sat there. And my two sisters were sat there. And I had nothing. I had no great kind of wisdom or expertise. You know, family is where all the stuff is. It doesn't matter. I'm 34. But when I walk into my mother's house, I have to intentionally choose not to become a teenager again. In every sense. You know what I mean? Like, and all those stories, all those feelings and realities of who you are, it all comes back to you. And I'm in that room. And so if it was one thing, it was awkward just awkward and the only thing I had was a memory of being in the Joshua Tree Desert the National Park walking with, with, with my wife and there were these signs throughout the desert which said beware of rattlesnakes they live between the gaps in the rocks they live between the gaps and that's all I said to my family it's like there's gaps and there's snakes in the gaps and those snakes are poisonous and they only speak lies and we've begun believing them and we have today we have to close the gap so the peacemaker, the first thing the peacemaker does is names what needs to be named and owns what needs to be owned. And from there, we can start building. From there, we can start doing some real good, holy work. So that whole day happened and it was brutal. It was awkward. It, it was, there was no nice neat bow on the end of it. I got back in the car. I got back home. Four hours drive back. The next day I got in the car and I drove all the way back. Yeah. It's four years ago, and all I can tell you now is my family is a, is a place of refuge. My family, there is nothing unsaid now. There's no snakes. There's, there's no lies. There's no stories that are being believed. There's just, it's refuge. And I believe it can be possible for all of us in our spaces of influence and also in our own souls. When my, little, when my daughter was just beginning to say a few words, we were reading her uh, those little cartoon books about you know, world changes. And we read her the one about Rosa Parks. And uh, when we got to the page where it said, a white man came to Rosa Parks and said, give me your seat. It read, so Rosa turned to him and Rosa said, look at my daughter, no. She said like that. No, Rosa said no. And then Rosa went to prison. And then Rosa came out of prison and Rosa started dreaming and scheming about making peace in the land. Not keeping peace, making peace. 
making peace for her people, making peace in the land. And uh, the, 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 the invitation rings out to us today to become peacemakers. So the first thing that we have to do as peacemakers is respond to conviction. When, when Jesus walked into that temple, conviction met him straight away. This is my father's house, a house of prayer, a house for all people, a refuge. And it's become a place of crisis and trade. And I'm going to turn over these tables. So if I can just really end with just a, a, a word about, about conviction, it's this. It says in, in 1 John, uh, let's do it together. Perfect love. It's not polite love. It's perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love does not ask fear to leave politely. Perfect love, God is love, John says in the saying, God is love. And if you have not known love, you have not known God. God is love. So it's God we're talking about. God casts out fear because it's, it's his love. It's who he is. And he built us. Paul says in Corinthians, do you not know? Like, have you forgotten? And maybe some of us have. Did you not know that now you are the temple? Your body is not your own. You were bought at a great price. So God owns the temple. And like any good landlord, if there were squatters living in the temple, in, in the landlord's house, he would come. And if they didn't answer, well, it's his house. He's knocking down the door. He's coming in and he's throwing out from the temple that which has no right to be there. The, the peacemaker responds to that conviction. The peacemaker knows that wherever there's conviction, there's about to be an eviction. And it begins with us. We cannot deal with the heart of a matter until, until we start healing the matters of our heart. And so for some of you in the room, there's just a growing sense of, oh man, it's time to deal with it. It's time to name it. It's time to own it. it it's time to bring it into the light. And maybe that's today, or maybe that's in your hub, or maybe that's a phone call tomorrow. But it's time. It's time to throw over the tables. And then for some of you, it's, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it's, yeah, it's family, or it's the workplace, or it's the friendship group. It's time externally to start responding to this conviction because there is about to be an eviction. We're going to drive out everything from these temples that isn't of him. And we're going to turn these places of crisis into places of refuge. We're still believing that Hebron is going to be a place of refuge. And we're believing it is true for ourselves. Amen. Amen. That, that song that we sung, I haven't sung it in so long. Um, what's the lyric? Oh, my days. It's coming for the heart that holds on. And there will be an end to these troubles. I started crying because I thought there will be an end to these troubles because he's made peace with all things. The great revelation of this house is all things will be made new. And Jesus has affirmed that in his death and in his resurrection. The, his death on the cross, I promise you I'm ending now, I promise, is, is the cross is the sword, right? Because the Golgotha is the skull. Golgotha is the place of the skull. So when the cross goes into the, into the ground, the sword goes into the head of the skull. And Jesus dies and then descends down into Hades and unlocks it. In, in, in Narnia terms, Aslan says, the, the white witch knows the deep magic, but she only knows it from the dawn of time. So the enemy knew something. Yeah, he knows if you kill someone, they die. His knowledge doesn't go back far enough. Jesus killed death with death. Jesus overthrew the, temples in, overthrew the tables in the temple. And then he overthrew hell. 
Jesus has overthrown the powers and the principalities. Why? So that we could know peace. And there will be an end to these troubles. But until that day comes. So everything that we do, every act of peacemaking is an affirmation of the day that is coming. That we can be assured in where peace will be made. And I'm thinking of my friend who's 25 with a child and has cancer. And I'm thinking of the children that you've all seen on social media afflicted by war, that when you go to sleep like me still haunt you, right? I'm thinking of all the things that are in my life and that are in yours where you're like, God, how can this be resolved? How? There will be an end to this trouble. But until that day comes, we will make peace in every facet that we can. We will make peace. There's a, I wrote this down when, when John got up and talked about courage. There's a, there's a line in the Dawn Treader um, in, by C.S. Lewis. And you, you might have heard this quote, but not know it in context. There's a boat that's going into this great storm that Lucy's on. Right? You guys know Lucy? Line of Witch in the Wardrobe. Lucy leant her head on the edge of the fighting top and she whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little, a very little, a very little braver and a little better. The albatross called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, but no one understood them, no one except Lucy, for she knew that as it circled, she heard it whisper, courage, dear heart. And she was sure that it was the voice of Aslan. You might have heard that, courage, dear heart. And that is my, that is my final prayer and blessing to us all. Courage, dear heart. Let us go into the world and make peace within ourselves. Let us respond to the conviction and let us confess our sins. Let us confess that which troubles us. Let us make peace in, in our workplaces, in our families, and in our friendships. And may it all be a great testament to that day where we will experience the final fulfillment of Jesus' great work of peacemaking. Amen. Amen. Amen.